Thank you for joining Radio Maria England. We now present Feasts and Seasons, presented by Joanna Bogle. Hello. Here I am and talking about the feasts and seasons of the year on the first really summery month, June. June is traditionally the month of the Sacred Heart, the great reminder of Christ's heart beating with love for us. There's a lot in this. It's the oldest idea of all. God loves us. God is love. And Christ's heart was opened on the cross and blood and water poured out. There's something very deep about this understanding of Christ's heart. And the idea of the sacred heart is central to Catholic understanding. The whole month of June is dedicated to the Sacred Heart, and we'll be exploring that quite a lot more as the month goes by. Most Catholics will somehow have an idea of the great Saint Margaret Marie Alacoque, who is associated with this particular devotion because of a series of powerful visions that she had in which Christ revealed his Sacred Heart and revealed that he wanted special devotion to it. Very, very important, important in the history of France, important for us all. I have particular memories of going to Paris-le-Monial in France, where a wonderful gathering takes place every year, very much focusing on the Sacred Heart. And because this is a great shrine of the Sacred Heart and of Margaret Marie Alacoque. There's more to June than the Sacred Heart, because we have all the individual feasts that come along the way. And I'm going to talk about one which isn't so well known in Britain and ought to be. Ever heard of a place called Namugongo? No, I thought not. It's a great shrine in Africa, in what is now the country of Uganda. And it goes back to some powerful, dramatic, and in many ways horrific, and in many ways glorious, events that took place in the 1880s among the group of people known then as the Baganda. It was part of the emerging British Empire, and a number of missionaries had really planted the church quite deeply in the hearts of a great many people. They'd always had an understanding that there was one great God greater than all the others, and there was a sort of tradition that one day some people would come to reveal more about this great God. That was all part of their sort of folk story. Well, they did come. Missionaries, Catholic and Anglican, and interestingly, because of the great power of the European achievements at that time, the Baganda people were impressed, and especially their Kabaka was, because these people had come by sea. And the idea that you could get a boat that would come all that way from a long, long distance and so on impressed them. They were not doing that kind of engineering themselves at all. The missionaries therefore came with, well, how can one put it, uh, quite a high status because of their physical achievements, their engineering, one might say. But they also spoke in a way that people really understood. They understood about a great God, a father God, who loved. Back to that idea, of course, in a way, of the sacred heart, God's great love for us. And a number became Christian and accepted baptism. What is interesting is that they'd had a dose of something earlier as Islamic traders had been coming from further north of Africa and had had quite an influence among the Bagandan people. 
And they were at least monotheistic. They talked about one God. But Christianity was a much richer, more purified version of that. And yes, it took root. The king was a chap called the Kabaka. That's the traditional title. And of course, there's still a Kabaka among these people today. And the Kabaka was young and had recently inherited. His father had been very deeply respectful of the Christians. The younger Kabaka, not so sure, but he did like their technical achievements that they seemed to represent. A number of his young pages were very much attracted to the missionaries and went to listen to their talks and joined in their prayers. It's interesting, they were almost evenly divided between Church of England and Catholic missionaries, and the boys went to whichever they chose. And there were a good number of both among the pages at the court. It, it sounds funny to say there were a lot of pages. These were boys from the noblest families, and they were strong huntsmen, good at wrestling, seen as the uh, powerful uh, men of the next generation. And while they were young, they surrounded the court. And one of the things they did was accompany the Kabaka on hunting for elephants and so on, and also played a, a major, well, ceremonial guard role. The Kabaka was an absolute ruler, an absolute ruler. He had power over life and death of his subjects. Cross him and he could kill you. And the ceremonies for execution were grisly, rather haunting, powerful dancing with witch doctors in their leopard skin costumes, their faces painted with white stripes of chalk, the weird chanting, almost mesmeric. This too was a big part of life, the solemn execution, often in, in quite large numbers, of people who had broken the tribe, who had broken the unity, who had broken um, the bond. Christianity didn't at first see much of a threat. The Kabaka was interested. He was interested in what the missionaries represented. And he could sense that the young men were attracted to something that didn't seem very much to threaten his power. But he could also see that it did threaten it. It challenged him at the core of his being. It challenged that absolute rule of life and death. It challenged the idea of his absolute power. And it challenged something else more deeply personal. When it came to the crunch, these young Christians, including some not yet baptized catechumens, we would say today, who were just listening to instruction and getting interested and praying, they and the others already baptized, rather more mature in the faith, refused to do something that the Kabaka wanted, which was to join him in homosexual activity. He'd got used to having the pages do exactly as they were told. And this was one of the things he wanted them to do, along with smoking hemp, actually. But this he had to have a partner for. Hemp he could indulge in alone, but it was necessary to have a partner for homosexual activity. It had never been part of the Banganda people's tradition. One of them would later write, it was always something that someone would do in secret, like one who steals. It was a, a thing of shame, a thing known not to be right. So the Christian message on this, which of course teaches that it's deeply wrong, simply chimed in with what they knew. What we would today understand as something written into the hearts of men, something written into our understanding of ourselves, explained rather well in John Paul's theology of the body. We know that this is wrong. It's written into us. So they refused. And this meant they would die. 
Now, we need to understand the full implications of this. One of the leaders, really the leader among the pages, was Charles Luanga. Luanga, his name, and Charles, the name he'd accepted in baptism. And he was clear in teaching the others and leading them when the missionaries weren't available. Big territory, small number of uh, European missionaries. So he was very much the spiritual as well as the uh, recognized, anyway, leader of the group, leading them in the rosary and so on. They'd become very interested in the church's calendar and were looking forward to a big celebration for Ascension Day when they knew the missionaries would be back again and when some of them were due to be baptized. There's something very powerful about Charles Ranga's leadership. Gentle, spiritual, good at listening, and the much younger boys, including Kitsito, the very youngest of the boys who was uh, attending the instructions, looked up to him and accepted his leadership and admired him. When the Kabaka said, why are these people not coming forward when I order them? There was a real danger. And at one point, he couldn't find one particular boy that he wanted, a, a young, rather vulnerable boy. He wanted to, him to accompany him on hunting. And it was understood that there would be something more that he wanted to do when they all returned from the hunt. Well, it all blew up into a crisis, and he summoned all the pages and ordered those who pray, that was the expression they used, those who pray go and stand over there. An echo here of the very early church where there were descriptions of martyrs being summoned by the emperor. And you had to put yourself forward. Yes, I am one who prays. Yes, I am a Christian. You could just remain where you were. It was only a matter of walking. One of the things that's interesting is that the boys didn't stride forward in a great cheerful mass, but a large number did quietly walk forward. Among them, Kitsito, the littlest, the youngest boy, only 14. And yes, of course, Charles Luanga. They went and stood where they were told, Anglicans and Catholics together. And then they were told, you will be executed. The story is actually a terrible one. They were marched through the jungle, chained together. And there are descriptions of how the chains cut into their ankles as they were dragged and forced to march along. When they got to Namugongo, the traditional place of execution, they were kept for some days chained while the great funeral execution fires were set up. These are huge pyramid-shaped fires, and the boys would be wrapped in mats uh, made of uh, rushes uh, uh, sort of woven together and rolled into the fire. Everyone was summoned. That's why it took a while to get this thing going. It would be seen by everybody. And on the appointed morning, June the 3rd in our calendar, the witch doctors began their chant, the mothers of these will weep today, the mothers of these will weep today. They could still have recanted. They could still have said, yes, I'll obey the Kabaka. They could have said, everything is his. My life, my body is his. But they knew their bodies belonged with their souls to God, and that body and soul is united. So they were dragged forward. The howling and chanting of the witch doctors. and yes people witnessing, including their own parents, knowing that this horror would be established for all time in their tribe, knowing that their parents, their mothers, would indeed weep, would have to watch them be burned alive. We have a number of accounts of all of this because people who were there, there were large numbers, later reported it all, not least to the missionaries, 
it was very much a witnessed martyrdom. There was nothing sort of secret in a in a in a darkened dungeon about it where some martyrs have suffered over the years. No, this was a great and public thing. The boys were rolled in mats and put on the fire. There are some remarkable stories. Little Katsito was very, very, very frightened and was shaking and shaking and shaking all over. And Charles Luanga took him by the hand and said, when the decisive moment comes, I will hold your hand like this and we will go together. And they did. They went together. And little Casito by then was dancing. I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to see our Jesus face to face. I'm going to see Jesus. Charles Luanga was put on the fire last and they, Kabaka had ordered that the, the fire be doused down so that it would take a long time to burn and he would suffer long, long agony. And he called out, I don't feel any heat. I feel cool water pouring over me. Nobody who was present ever forgot the testimonies. They never forgot little Katsito dancing and happy and singing as he went on the funeral pyre. They never forgot Charles Luanga saying that he was all right, that he didn't feel any pain. They never forgot the sight of all these young men being burned together. In the 1960s, over 100 years later, the Uganda martyrs, and we name them the 40 Uganda martyrs because of the great tradition of 40 coming from the scriptures, 40 years in the desert, the Israelites, Christ 40 years in the desert. 40 is written into our bodies. It's the length of time you spent in the womb before you were born, 40 weeks. They were all canonized as a group, and we name them after Charles Ranger. You'll find in your Catholic diary that it's Charles Ranger and his companions. And the 40 martyrs of Uganda, June the 3rd, their feast day, is now a public holiday in Uganda. And people go to Namugongo and they have a great uh, open mass, in fact, a, a great one that is celebrated with the bishop and everything. And then afterwards, a great feast, everyone bringing food. The way it's organized is there's a sort of island in the middle of a lake and mass is celebrated. Uh, huge crowds are able to, to be accommodated uh, on the shores of the lake. There's something very powerful about the whole story. In the canonization, Pope Paul VI, now himself Saint Pope Paul VI, mentioned to the Anglican martyrs, we do not forget them, of the Anglican communion. And in the Anglican cathedral in Uganda, they list the names of all of the martyrs. The, there was a witness here for Christian unity, which, when it happened in the 1880s, could not have, not have imagined, no one could have seen what a powerful witness that would be in the years to come. The church in Uganda is thriving. One of the things that's very powerful is the renewed truth of the saying from the early church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I learned all of this talking to Ugandans here in Britain. I've never been to Uganda. I've been invited. I don't know that it's something that's going to happen anytime soon. I also learned from talking to those White Fathers missionaries, oh, not the ones who were alive in the 1880s, but the White Fathers who are very proud of this tradition and who have a great deal of documented information on it, not least their headquarters in London. Celebrate the Feast of the Uganda Martyrs. Use this as an opportunity to teach that we need heroism in standing up for Christian chastity. It's a tough call today. For the first time, African drums were heard in St. Peter's. There was something very powerful about that new chapter opening, more powerful than anyone could have imagined in the 1880s. Uganda is now a country in its own right. It's not a protectorate of Britain, but the 
links are very strong. And most people in Uganda will automatically learn English as well as their own local language, usually more than one local language. There's something very important about our understanding of the immense growth of the church in the world and of the power and impact of that 19th century missionary endeavour and how quickly it has grown, especially in the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st, so that African prelates and bishops now play a major role in the worldwide church. Thank God for Charles Luanda. May he pray for us all in heaven. May he pray for our young people. May they be brave and strong. May little Kitsito pray for them. You're listening to Auntie Joanna, Joanna Bogle on Feasts and Seasons. Tune in to Auntie Joanna on Feasts and Seasons on Sunday, 6.30pm, Tuesday, 4.30pm, Saturday, 2.30am, Saturday, 8.30pm. And send us any of your stories. Tell us how you celebrate the feasts and seasons of the church's year. Any family traditions? What do you do, make, eat and sing for the different feasts of the year? What will you be doing for the feasts that are coming up? Send us your stories at info at radiomariaengland.uk. Music